0: Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, It's been a while since I've been in your facility. I had not yet seen the new uh, lobby area, which I think is really cool. Uh, I want to read to you Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. That is the text that I've been assigned for today. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. And as one whom hit, men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Father, this is your word. The prophetic spot of, uh, from Isaiah that you have designed for him to leave for us. Thank you for it, Lord, and I thank you for the message A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And even as we are here today, we call this Good Friday. And it's really a great Friday and a really bad Friday. It was bad when it was happening, but oh, what a difference it's made in our lives. And Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for taking our place on the cross. And for taking care of our sin. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The Isaiah 53 passage, uh, this chapter is really the clearest presentation of the gospel in the Old Testament. It is so clear and so convicting that it is not read at all in Orthodox synagogues today. It presents the Messiah as the suffering servant as the one who bore our sin. It's a convicting passage. The Messiah that the Israelites were looking for was, in their minds, a military leader. One that would conquer the Roman Empire, thus setting them free from bondage. What they got was the death conqueror the one who would set them free from the bondage of sin. Now, this was a big deal in the lives of the Israelites. They were looking for the Messiah.
1: They were living in the promised land, but not as a nation. After they
0: were conquered by the Babylonians, they went into uh, captivity. And when they came back into the land, they were ruled by Rome not by themselves. And so it was a big deal to look for the Messiah, the one that would conquer Rome, the ones that would set them free from the bondage. Israel became a nation again, May 14th, 1948, as a fulfillment of some of the prophecy that God had left for us in his word. And due to the captivity the Israelite people, there was no nation of Israel. There were Israelites. They were living in the land that was promised to them, as far back as Abraham in the book of Genesis. But the people were under bondage. They were under bondage to the Roman Empire, and so they watched for the Messiah to come. A Messiah who would be a military leader somewhat like King David of old. After all, the Messiah would be in the line of King David. And so they were looking for someone like him. Isaiah 53 tells us of the Messiah, but not like the one the people wanted. And so Isaiah says, who, who would believe our report? This is kind of like him saying, you're not going to believe this, but... And so he gives a description of what the Messiah would be like. They wanted one that would save them from Rome. God sent them one who would save them from their sins. Isaiah 53 describes the Messiah as the suffering servant, not as the conquering king. And if there are two words that Isaiah 53 has repeated. The words are despised and rejected. The Messiah was despised and rejected. It began at his birth. There was no place for Mary and Joseph to go, to have a nice, comfortable place for Jesus to be born. It was a contemptible beginning. Who would have expected the Messiah to be born in in a stable? Rather, to be born in a palace type of building with everything needed for an opulent beginning. Isaiah called him a root out of dry ground, like something that's not wanted. If it were wanted, someone would have watered it and it would have grown. Now, we as God's people, we we know about the Messiah's birth. We celebrate it every year. We probably know a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't even relate to his birth. But he was born in a stable. His first cradle was a feed trough. This is recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. Now we have a tendency to romanticize this, but don't. You know, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. It's more like the donkeys are hee hawing, and uh, it was not a nice place. It was smelly. So don't romanticize it. Don't make it sound like it was anesthetic and clean and proper. It was dirty and smelly, because there was no room for them in the inn. I wonder if the innkeeper had known that it was God's own son, if he would have found some room in that inn. At least he provided for them a stable. So the first visitors were shepherds. Shepherds were somewhat despised low end of the totem pole as far as people were concerned. They were told that Jesus was
1: the Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the appointed one. But who would recognize this baby born
0: in a stable? Well, we do have some records of people that recognize him. The first one was Simeon, Who was awaiting for the discovery or the the appointment of the, the Messiah? And Jesus, or God had promised him that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. And so when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to be dedicated at the temple, he was there and he recognized who Jesus was. He was the fulfillment of God's promise. Anna was there as well, and she spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. But that was it. Two people out of the entire nation recognized the baby Jesus as the Messiah. You would have thought that the religious leaders would have recognized him or had some clue as to who he was. A couple years later, when the Magi came to find the baby Jesus, uh, the scribes and Pharisees had to dig deep to find out where in the world this child would be born. They found it, but they were not equally searching for Jesus either. And it didn't stop there. Jesus lived in complete obscurity until the beginning of his earthly ministry some 30 years later. Later, as Jesus was gathering his disciples together, Philip, one of the disciples, found his friend Nathanael. And he said, we have found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Nathanael was prejudiced. What, What good thing could come out of Nazareth? But Philip invited him to come and see. You see, Jesus came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. He was despised, and he was rejected. He was despised and rejected during the years of his ministry. Mark chapter 6, we read these words. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brothers of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty works ever except laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. You see, the people in his hometown took offense of him. Oh, they they watched him grow. Perhaps they bought something from the carpenter's shop. They knew who he was, they knew who his mother was, they knew who his brothers were, and he even had sisters, and he was just kind of there. But they didn't think of him as anything special, and so they're wondering, where in the world did this guy get this wisdom? What, did he, what came to him that he would know such strong spiritual truths? And so that disrespect and that rejection continued throughout his ministry. Mark 2:16 And the scribes of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners Then in Mark 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him to see how they might destroy him.
1: You see, he was despised and he was rejected. And then in John 5, this is why the Jews
0: were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God in Matthew 12 and when the Pharisees heard it they said it is only by Beelzebul the prince of demons that this man casts out demons.
1: He was despised and he was rejected. Not even his own brothers believed in him. You see he came unto his own but his own received him not. The largest example of being despised and rejected came on what we are celebrating today, Good Friday. The beatings, the trials, the betrayal, the
0: denials, all those things went into him being despised and rejected. Beginning with the betrayal, Judas, ever thinking of money, made a deal with the scribes and Pharisees to point out Jesus in a public place, giving the Jewish leaders opportunity to arrest Jesus and take him away for a series of
1: illegal trials. Lying witnesses, punching,
0: slapping Jesus, spitting in Jesus' face. You see, he was despised and rejected. Meanwhile, Peter is denying even knowing him. Luke tells us that after the last denial, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. How my heart would have melted at that sight. The fact that I had just said, oh, I will never betray you. I will never deny you. Everybody else might, but I will never do that. And not too much later, not only did I deny him three times, but
1: Jesus looked at me. Before Pilate, he had, uh, Jesus had two meetings with Pilate After the
0: first time, Pilate declared to the people, I find
1: no fault in him. He's not guilty. But the beatings continued, and the crown of thorns, and the mockings. Luke
0: 22, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you?
1: And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And on it went. We had an attorney in our church in Lancaster,
0: who did a study of all the trials that Jesus went through. And he showed the illegalities of all of them. The fact that they just wanted him dead. They wanted him gone. And they would do anything they could
1: to have Jesus out of their hair. You see, he was despised and rejected.
0: In John 19 we read, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, or scourged is a better better term. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with his hands, with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find
1: no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns
0: and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. You see, he was despised and rejected. One of the things that took place during that time was that Pilate gave the people an opportunity to choose a man to be released from prison. Would it be Jesus, the one who healed, the one who drove out demons, the one who taught love your neighbor as yourself, or it would be Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the robber, the murderer, the one that everybody wanted to see
1: gone, who would they choose? Put yourself in Barabbas' place. You're sitting in a prison cell. You
0: know that your death is imminent. And you can hear the crowd in the background Pilate comes out and says, who do you want released, Barabbas or Jesus? And the Pharisees whip the crowd into a frenzy and they're screaming, Barabbas,
1: Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas.
0: And then Pilate says, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What do you think Barabbas
1: heard? He heard Barabbas, crucify him. And not too much
0: later, a Roman soldier would come to his cell, unlock it, open the door, and invite Barabbas to leave.
1: You see, Jesus died his death. And he died ours, too. He was despised and rejected, and yet out of his mouth
0: came, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the times that we forget about you. That we forget about your son and his great gift taking our sin upon his body on the cross and nailing it there and forgiving us with a forgiveness that is everlasting.
1: Buried in the sea of forgetfulness. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
2: What a special chapter Isaiah 53 is, isn't it? Written some 700 years before Christ's death on the cross, the prophet Isaiah is able to take his readers to the shadow of the cross. And he does so with very explicit detail. I can't help but think, as Isaiah was writing these words, what thoughts crossed his mind as he considered the depth and and I'll bet strangeness of the things that he was writing. That the Lord gave explicit detail to Isaiah's how the Messiah, Jesus, would suffer. But more than that, the Lord would give Isaiah the reason for Jesus' suffering. Considering our, pa- our passage today, Pastor John MacArthur said this, if we were to lose all of the New Testament and only have the eyewitness accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there would be enough explanation and theology in this chapter to lead a sinner to full salvation. And so it is absolutely appropriate for us today to spend time here in Isaiah 53. This marvelous chapter on a somber day as we take time to reflect. to Reflect on the sufferings of our Savior on the cross for our sins. I want us to notice something about Isaiah 53, especially in the verses that I will be looking at in verses 4 through 6. Let me read those for you. Isaiah writes, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him you look at this passage, you see the contrast, the innocent contrasted with the guilty. We see the verbs of bore, carried, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, and crushed. But then you see the pronouns, are, we,
1: and us. Notice that?
2: Isaiah is saying that a future generation will look back at these past events and realize that Jesus' suffering and death was for us. The focus on these verses especially is the gracious provision of a righteous substitute. And Isaiah is foreshadowing to that time when believing Israel will acknowledge the sufferings of Jesus On the cross for their sins. And that time will occur specifically as Israel prepares to enter Messiah's kingdom during his millennial reign. But there is something here for us,
1: there is something for us to see as well.
2: We are the us. The suffering and death of Jesus was for us. Good Friday is a result of our rebellion. All of us have sin that must be paid for. There's one more thing I want us to see before we look into this text. and That is the grace of God. Marvelous grace. Wonderful grace. 700 years before the cross, God gave us great detail of how his son would suffer for the transgressions and sins and trespasses of all people. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, highlights Christ's substitutionary atonement for our sins. Christ took our penalty, he paid our price. And for some, that seems too impossible that God would willingly pay for the sins of those who disobeyed him. The notion of Christ's substitutionary death seems unapproachable, unfathomable, and there might be some here this morning at a period and season in your life where you struggled with this radical grace that God would do for you what you could not do for yourself. There are skeptics and there are people that, that hear the message of the gospel and say that that seems too good to be true. But it is what is referred to by many in Christendom as the scandal of grace. That we receive
1: the greatest joy
2: as a result of the suffering of the perfect one. In verse 4, Isaiah reveals that Jesus bore our griefs. This word griefs means sickness. And to bear something means to carry it. That Jesus carried our sickness. The sickness of sin. The illness of our soul was carried to the cross. We were unable to do it. We are too weak to do anything and this perfect one carried it on our behalf. He also carried our sorrows. Sorrows were focuses on the inward effect of sin. Griefs focuses on the outward, sorrows on the inward. Jesus carried our anguish. I think those were the thoughts that were with Jesus as he considered. In the garden, as he prayed out to the Father, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. But not my will, your will, Lord. Considering the cross, the suffering, the shame, Jesus treaded on, knowing that it was for us to be redeemed. But the heavy load that he carried Not just a cross that he barely struggled to carry for a little bit, but our sin, our shame. It wasn't the physical torture that Jesus endured that he willingly carried our sins to the cross. Longtime music director for the Billy Graham crusade, Cliff Barrow, tells the story of a time when he was interacting with his two young children and for the nth time they did something wrong. And so he brought them together. He repeated their offense to them. And they were going to be needed to be disciplined. And Cliff shares that his tender heart was pained through this process that he would have to punish those that he loved. And so he called his children into his room. He removed his belt and then he knelt down and gave them
1: the belt. And he told each child to whip him. And his children cried,
2: but the penalty had to be paid. The children sobbed as they lashed their daddy's back, and then Cliff hugged and kissed them and prayed with them. And he recalled in this story, he said, it hurt, but I never had to spank them again.
1: Surely our griefs he himself
2: bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Yet we. Isaiah mentions that in that time on the day of Good Friday, those whom Jesus came to set free will see the cross as a penalty. They'll look at Jesus and consider that he must have done something wrong. They considered him a blasphemer. They saw the judgment that he faced. And Isaiah gives that perspective that they looked at him as one who was smitten by God. This word smitten means to strike to death. And They believed it happened and occurred by the hand of God. Jesus claimed to be God. And yet was not leading the crowds to the deliverance that they were looking for. He was one who claimed to have authority and yet spoke against the teachings of the religious leaders of the time. Jesus was one who opposed the vested authority of the establishment of the religious. And yes, it was the will of the Father as we see here in verse 4 and 5 and also in verse 10. It was the will of the Father to crush his son. But Isaiah explains that their assumption was for wrongdoing, not for the atonement, not for the substitute, not for that great gift that Jesus provided to do for them what they could not do. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. But he was pierced. A change of mind will occur for Israel. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Jesus would be pierced on the cross. They would drive nails into His hands and feet and pierce His side. This was done for our transgressions. That word transgression is another synonym for the word sin, but it carries the idea of rebellion. And I don't know if we actually consider that in our own lives in those moments, but every time we fall short of the glory of God and everything that we say and think and do, we are rebelling against the holy God, and yet Jesus went to the cross Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' life was literally crushed out of him. He was battered and bruised. On the way to the cross, Jesus was punched and slapped in the face. According to Matthew 27, verse 30, the Romans took sticks and hit him on the head. This was for our iniquities. Another synonym for the word sin. But it focuses on the idea of a premeditated wrongdoing. We don't sin
1: by accident. We sin by an
2: act act of volition of the will. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Jesus. Jesus suffered the punishment for our sin. He died in our place so that while our outer man will pass away, our spirit will never be separated from God through faith in his Son. The chastening for us fell upon him. Then Isaiah says something that I don't know if I quite understand. I'm sure Isaiah struggled to understand. And certainly we as the readers can hardly fathom the depth that by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah correctly prophesied the Lord would be scourged at the hands of the Romans, and the scourging process in and of itself would be deadly, as a leather whip with pieces of glass and bone tied to it was used to rip open the flesh on the back of our Savior. In a brutal destruction of the body, Isaiah says that it is by that that we are healed. Then Isaiah finishes up in verse 6, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And again, we see this contrast between the specific, determined plan of God, the The focused intent of the suffering servant to receive what was not His contrasted with the aloofness of us as sheep who wander and scatter as sheep who are determined to go their own way.
1: Each of us has turned to his own way. I
2: don't think there's any more fitting description of the willful rebellion that we are all guilty of than
1: here. Sheep are not very smart,
2: they wander. They put themselves in danger and left to our own. We are vulnerable and cannot survive. The message of Good Friday is that God provided a way for us to come home. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. This is the gospel, this is the good news. The New Testament equivalent of this verse is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our willful rebellion, our sin fell on Jesus. Our sin brought Jesus to the cross Our sin killed the perfect Son of God. It's ours. And while our sin nailed Him to the cross, His righteousness is given to us. God's grace invites us to come back to Him. Listen, Good Friday is a pressing reminder that we need a shepherd. That we are sheep that are scattered. We are wandering. And we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus said in John 10 verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so I praise God that we have a good shepherd that took our place, paid for our sins, and by his grace calls us back to him. There is no better place for us to be than in the the shadow of our shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. And even the mere utterance of thanks just does not seem enough when we consider the, the weight,
1: the depth,
2: the amazing gift of the cross of our Savior. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you loved
1: us first. You willingly left heaven to come to this earth
2: and to take our place, to be our substitute. We pray, Father, that this service would awaken our hearts not only to the amazing grace that is given through the cross, but Father, also the depth of the love that you have for your children, and that in faithful response, what you have accomplished, we would leave here that much more motivated to live for you, to honor you, and to please you. We thank you that your spirit is with us, inside of us, equipping us for that very purpose. For it's in the strong name of Jesus Christ we ask all these things. Amen.
3: I would like to draw your attention to Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. As I read it, I will remind you that this is the word of God. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off for the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In the 8th chapter of Acts, Luke introduces us to a important treasury official from Ethiopia. He was reading this very text as he returned home from a religious festival in Jerusalem. Providentially meeting Philip on the way, he asked the evangelist to explain to him who the prophet was talking about. Philip had no hesitation in applying Isaiah's words to the good news about Jesus. Philip's link of Isaiah 53 to the person of Jesus is very significant. This is only a few years after the crucifixion of Christ, yet it was already commonly accepted among the early Christians that Isaiah 53 was about Jesus. There's this idea that Isaiah 53 was a belated discovery. It was foisted on the ancient prophet long after Christ's death. That The early church uh, uh, later down the road had to justify their existence by saying that Isaiah 53 was about Jesus but it was clearly understood to be about Jesus from the very beginning of Christianity Isaiah's portrait gives us the richest understanding of the work of Christ found in the Old Testament Isaiah 53 is referred to in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Acts And Romans and 1 Peter. Isaiah reveals that the ultimate sacrifice, the actual true day of atonement, was to be the sacrifice of a human being, the man of sorrows himself, Jesus the Christ. In our passage, we see the suffering character of of the Messiah praised. The suffering character of the Messiah praised. The context has already revealed that all this suffering was on our behalf. But we see in these verses how he suffered as he suffered for us. Well, first of all, his praiseworthy character is shown through his silent suffering. Verse 7, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led led to the slaughter, like a sheep who is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. The writer is struck by the fact that the victim was unprotesting. Twice, in the same verse, he repeats, he did not open his mouth. The silence of the the man of sorrows was also startling to Pilate In fact, it prompted Matthew to write that the governor was quite amazed that Christ chose not to defend himself in spite of the fact that he was innocent of the charges. In fact, Pilate knew he was innocent. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in this man, and he he tried to wash his hands of of the whole ordeal. Pilate knew he was innocent. Isaiah knew he was innocent, yet he opened not his mouth we see his praiseworthy character and the fact that he suffered in the silence now this is something new victims would always either confess their guilt to hope to get their sentence uh, changed or they would challenge god and claim they were innocent yet this uh, this man of sorrows is not protesting he is voluntarily allowing this tragedy play out it was a conscious choice i mentioned that uh, philip already in the book of acts knew that isaiah 53 was about jesus but so did the apostle peter here are his words For you have been called for this purpose since christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps quoting, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And yet being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Peter knew Isaiah 53 was about Jesus. This voluntary nature of his death distinguishes it from all the animal sacrifices that had come before. When an animal was sacrificed, a lamb or a goat or a bull or a heifer, they had no no choice in the matter. They had no understanding. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, the lamb had no idea what fate awaited him. He didn't know what was going to happen. He he didn't understand. And he had no choice. He he couldn't unvolunteer. Yet this victim, this man of sorrows, this suffering servant, had both a choice and full knowledge of what was happening. It rather exercise his choice or to realize the gravity of the situation and tried to escape it, he willingly volunteered and opened not his mouth. Ultimately, only a person can substitute. For people. That's why there were so many sacrifices to this point. So many animals were slain. So much blood was shed. The animal can't really pay the price. That's why they did it over and over again. But here is a person. Isaiah's servant. The man of sorrows. Who is being led to a slaughter. And sacrificed. For us. So his praiseworthy character is shown through his silent suffering. His praiseworthy character is shown through his unjust suffering. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This means that Jesus' death was, was unfair. It was an unjust trial. It was by oppression. It was, it was being, uh, a, a, an unfair judgment being pronounced upon him. It was a... We know from the Gospels that it was a totally illegal trial with trumped-up charges. In fact, the only charge they really could bring to Pilate was treason. They accused Jesus of treason. They said, he's told the people not to pay their taxes to Caesar, which of course was a lie, right? That's not what he told them. He said to render to Caesar's what's Caesar's and what? To God's what's God's. But the only thing they could even think they would get him worthy of this penalty was to bring him to Pilate and say he's guilty of treason. He deserves that you Romans can't tolerate treason. It was unjust. Of all people through all time, nobody was treated more unjustly than the man of sorrows. He was taken away, it says. He was cut off as for his generation. In other words, uh, he died early. He was taken away too soon. He was killed in his prime before uh, his time. His mother never expected to lose her son. The disciples did not expect Jesus to be gone so soon. After three and a half years, he, he says to them, I, it's better for you if I go away. Before his prime, before his time, But we know that this was the plan from the beginning. It wasn't a cosmic accident. It wasn't unfortunate
1: circumstances. It was before the foundation of the world.
3: He goes on to say that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Stroke being the past tense of strike. It means who deserved this beating? Who deserved this wounding? We did. He did not. He did not. Uh, Mark tells us, And some began to spit at him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face Those slaps were my slaps. They were due me. Those wounds should have been my wounds. He took it for his people.
1: Not for crimes that he did. For crimes that I did. For crimes that you did.
3: It's one thing to suffer for your own sins. It's another thing to suffer unjustly for someone else's sins. And he opened not his mouth. He took his beating. They spit and slapped and struck him and whipped him. His praiseworthy character shown through his finished suffering. Verse 9. His grave was a sign with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. He took his suffering to the end, to death. To the grave, he took all that was being poured out on him to the very end. We remember the garden. He said, "I could have, I could call ten thousand angels. I don't I, I don't have to take this. He didn't have to stay on that cross. He didn't have to take that beating. He could have called a legion of angels to come rescue him. Yet he took it to the grave. He took it to the death." Last Sunday, I spoke on Isaiah 53 and said, without Jesus as your hermeneutic, how else can you explain this chapter? How else can you understand this, this chapter? I said, but if there's, if there's one verse here, one truth that more than any other says this is talking about Jesus, it's where it says, verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. He died with criminals, right? He died between two criminals. Normally a criminal's body is thrown in a pauper's grave. Nobody cares about it. In fact, you'd be ashamed to try to care for, the, for the, somebody who lost their life uh, through crucifixion, that they were the enemy of the state. He was crucified as a criminal. He should have been treated as a criminal. Yet, it goes on to say, verse 9, yet he was with a rich man in his death. What does that mean? Well, Criminals were buried in paupers' graves, mass graves, but in the not in the type of grave that a rich person would have. But what do we read about Jesus? Right,
1: Matthew 27.
3: When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body. Of Jesus, Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own tomb. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. He died as a criminal, but he was not buried like one. This was not what the Jewish leaders planned. They wanted to be done with him take his body down with with the two thieves and throw it in a mass grave and let's forget about this troublemaker. But here's a rich man caring for the body, putting him in his own tomb. It goes on to say, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. I, I think what that means there is the shameful death By crucifixion that he suffered had everything to do with the atonement. But a shameful burial wasn't necessary. He had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. So yes, he paid the ultimate price for our atonement. But when he cried, It is finished, it was finished. So he gets to be buried with the rich, with the rich by a rich man. God the Father would permit. Permit no further indignities to befall his son.
1: His next step was glory. As we see so often in Scripture first suffering, then glory.
3: The author of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Father, I've puzzled over that that joy. I think primarily it means the joy of obedience. He 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 found joy in obeying the Father's will, not my will, he said, but thine, O God. There's joy in obedience, even if it's painful, even if the, the suffering, even if it brings suffering, unjust suffering. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured it.
1: He took it. He allowed it. No, he chose it for us. Hallelujah. Amen.
4: And so I'd invite you to go back to our chapter here in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, It's really sad to say that I, I don't seem to have many hobbies these days. It used to be that my hobby was playing sports, but since those days seemingly have passed me by, uh, the closest thing I have now to a hobby is I enjoy watching sports. And as a sports fan, I can easily say that this is my favorite time of the year. I love it when the Major League Baseball season kicks off. I absolutely love watching the Masters Golf Tournament Uh, which is going on at this very moment in Augusta, Georgia. It's probably my favorite sporting event of the year. But a close second would be March Madness, which just finished up with the University of Connecticut winning their fifth men's national basketball championship. And speaking of March Madness and the NCAA tournament, I saw the other day that there were approximately 70 million brackets that were filled out this year. And once again there were no perfect brackets submitted. In fact, in the long and storied history of the NCAA tournament, there has never been a perfect bracket, ever. Which means that no one has ever accurately predicted the winners of every game in the tournament. And the reason why, according to published reports, is the odds are absolutely staggering. With 67 games in a normal NCAA tournament bracket, the number of possible outcomes for a bracket is 9.2 quintillion. And in case you're wondering, one quintillion is one billion billions. Those are crazy, almost unimaginable odds. But those odds pale in comparison to what we find in the predictions found in the book of Isaiah as we concentrate our attention this afternoon on this amazing book, we find that it's it's chalked full of very detailed predictions, intricate prophecies about the life and death of Jesus. The odds makers wouldn't even be able to produce a number to quantify how impossible it would be for all the dozens and dozens of prophecies in this book to be perfectly fulfilled to the most minutest detail, but that's what we have here in the book of Isaiah. Now, before we look at verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 53 which we know is a prophecy about Jesus' death, let me first take you to Isaiah chapter 7, and let's look at a detailed prophecy about Jesus' life, specifically his birth. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel." Now notice the intricate detail of this this prediction, this this prophecy. First, a woman who is a virgin, which means that she's never been with a man, will conceive and have a child. And this child will be a young boy. And this virgin will name her child Emmanuel. Notice the intricate detail of this prediction, this, this prophecy. To an unbelieving world, that would be quite the stretch. Most would say impossible. But some 700 years after this prophecy was made, it was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. There are dozens and dozens of other detailed prophecies in the book of Isaiah that have already been fulfilled, or they will be fulfilled, but perhaps the most notable of all is what we find in our passage here in Isaiah chapter 53 about the death of Jesus. You see, the significance of the birth of Jesus is seen in his death. His his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. Jesus came to this earth to reveal God to man and to die in the place of sinners. And in this glorious chapter, we've already considered verses 1 through 3 that the Messiah would be rejected. And in verses 4 through 6, that God's servant would die for our sins and then in verses 7 through 9, that God's servant would be silent before his accuser, accusers and he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. Here as we come to verses 10 and 11, we find that every single detail of the account of Jesus' death had purpose because it was all a part of God's sovereign plan, the will of God. So let's look at our passage for this morning, or for this afternoon. It's verses 10 and 11. I'll read it to you, and then we'll go through it. Verse 10, "...but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied." By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And so here we find God's plan of redemption spelled out in detail. In other words, verses 10 and 11 reveal the direct thoughts of the father as it relates relates to the death of his son. Verse 10 begins with, but the Lord was pleased. But the Lord was... Pleased. And so in these two verses we find three ways, prophetically speaking, that God the Father is pleased with the obedience of his Son Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for a specific purpose. He came to this earth to die in the place of sinners. And the first way he is pleased is because Jesus rendered himself as a guilt offering. First part of verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. In other words, because man is guilty of his sin, there must be a sacrifice or a payment for his sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because the wages of sin is is death, there must be a permanent payment, a permanent covering, a permanent atonement for sin or sinful man is doomed. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 reminds us of the inadequacy, the the temporary nature of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The writer of Hebrews says that it is impossible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only Jesus... The sinless Lamb of God could atone for sin. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 when he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. No longer... No longer would sinful priests offer blemished animals to to temporarily cover over the sins of the people. Jesus would be the once-for-all sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27 says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for those of the people, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. Five years ago, I took a tour to Israel with a group of people that I did not know. And so we uh, learned about each other on the trip. We went to dozens and dozens of sites in Israel. One of them was called Tel Dan. And at the top of Tel Dan was an old altar. And so we walked about 45 minutes up this tell, and we finally got to the top and the guide that we were uh, with, who was uh, leading the trip, uh, I was talking with him, and he had shared a little bit about what this was and the historical nature of it, and I said, "This is a reminder for us that we don't need this anymore. We don't need these temporary coverings this." This this temporary blood sacrifice. We don't need this anymore because we have the once for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And so this young guide said, amazing! You have to tell all the people! I said, they already know. (laughs) That's what draws us together as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sin no more need for temporary coverings jesus is the lamb of god slaughtered by sinful men all throughout the text here in isaiah 53 but especially here in verses 10 and 11 we find that the sovereign will of god will be accomplished god is sovereign amen when we say that god is sovereign what do we mean Well, we mean that He is supreme. He is 100% in control of all things. And this should give us great comfort. Whatever it is that you are going through in your life, God has either prescribed it or He has permitted it. And all of it is happening for a purpose. God has a distinct purpose. He is sovereign. He has sovereignly decreed all things. Before the foundation of the world. He has done all of this. He, nothing takes him by surprise. He is in everything. He's working all things. According to his own good pleasure. For his glory. And for our good. Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that in him we also have an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will. The will of God was accomplished in the death of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the anointed one. In his book chosen by God, R.C. Sproul said this, He said, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. But again, one of the great truths of the Bible, one of the grand and glorious attributes of God is that He is sovereign. In fact, Psalm 103 and verse 19 says that the Lord God has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over everything. In other words, he has complete power and authority over all things. Man can predict, but God can produce. Man can guess, but God can guarantee. Man can hope. But God can help. Man is limited, but God is limitless. And aren't you glad that he is? He was pleased to offer his son as a payment for the sins of all who would believe in Jesus. Second, our sovereign God is pleased because Jesus will be resurrected after his death. Again, this is prophetically speaking, but look at the second part of verse 10. It says, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This this means that because Jesus will be resurrected after his death, he will see his offspring, his children, those whose sins he has provided atonement for, those who are the fruit of his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross of Calvary. The Apostle Peter expounds on this truth of his death and resurrection in his great sermon at the Feast of Pentecost recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Listen to this. Men of Israel, Peter is preaching. Thousands are gathered to hear his sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. It was impossible for him to be held in his power. The sinful men who put Jesus to death were certainly culpable for their sin, but they were mere pawns in the hand of our sovereign God who was carrying out his plan of redemption for sinners. And then third and finally here, our sovereign God is pleased because Jesus will bear the iniquity of all those that the Father has given him, and they will be justified. Verse 11 says, And a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it, and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. And so this prophecy points to Jesus the Son propitiating or or satisfying the Father's wrath against sin. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. Satisfaction. Jesus' death satisfied God's righteous anger against sin because God is holy and perfect and righteous. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot wink at sin. He must punish sin. But Jesus, the Son, whom God sent from the glories of heaven to come to the earth, He died in the place of sinners. He propitiated the Father's wrath against sin. He satisfied the requirements of So that God would not punish sinners like us. Amazing.
1: Amazing. We sin every day.
4: (laughs) We still sin. Even though God, through Christ, has forgiven us of our sin. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And so justification is the monergistic act of God whereby man is declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone, as the Protestant reformers decried. Not by works or human performance, but by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. How dare we think that God would receive our righteousness? He views our righteousness as filthy rags. Justification is by faith. Apart from the works of the law, Romans 5 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Enemies who now have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary, and by believing in him and what he has done for us, we now have peace. With him. All of this, all of this was part of the eternal plan of God to save sinners. Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his. Will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he favored us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. What what a beautiful prophetic chapter full of ironclad promises from our sovereign God. The song, Glorious Day, summarizes it well. One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as it could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. Word became flesh and the light shined among us, his glory revealed, living he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. One day they led him up Calvary's mountain. One day they nailed him to die on a tree. Suffering anguish, despised and rejected. Bearing our sins, my redeemer is he. hands. He healed nations, stretched out on a tree, and took the nails for me. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day, he's coming, O oh, glorious day. One day, the grave could conceal him no longer. One day, the stone rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death he had conquered. Now is ascended my Lord evermore. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. Living he loved me. Dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. O glorious day. One day... (laughs) One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one bringing my Savior, Jesus, is mine. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. And one day. One day, he's
1: coming. And what a glorious day that will be. You read the news, don't do it. Terrible.
4: I'm ready. I'm ready for that glorious day. Are you? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Have you repented of your sin? And trusted in Christ and him alone for your salvation the Bible says today is the day of salvation if you need Christ turn to him today let's pray our father we are blown away at your word at the accuracy of it at the inspiration of it at the authority of it at the sufficiency of it. And we are the recipients of your amazing grace. Undeserving sinners like us, you provided a blood atonement through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the only way that we could be redeemed. And yet you loved us enough to send your Son from the glories of heaven to come and to die in our place, to be the the, the sacrifice that you would accept, to be our substitute, for it's on the cross that we deserved to die. And yet you have done all of this for this. And all of this was something that you had planned before the foundation of the world. How do we even thank you?
1: Words don't seem enough
4: to thank you for what you've done for us, but our Father, words really, at this moment, all we have, we look forward to your coming, we thank you for all that you have done for us and are doing in us and even through us, but we thank you most of all for the suffering servant, the one that you sent, reveal God to man and to die In the place of sinners. Jesus Christ the righteous. So we thank you in his name this morning.
1: Amen.
5: We now come to the last segment. In a day of being well fed from God's word. But I hope you're still hungry for some more. As we look within the chapter of Isaiah 53. Please join me in verse 12. I'm going to read the word of God and then we will unpack what I hope will be just a continuation of the truth that we have heard thus far today. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 53 verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Today we call this day Good Friday. And to the outside world, that is a really confusing statement. That we are gathering today, yes, in memory, yes, in reverence, but that there would be an air of celebration so much so that we decorate our buildings with the symbol of the cross, a symbol of horrific execution. This does not make sense to an outside world, and we need to be crystal clear on why today is Good Friday. That on the cross, when Jesus declared, it is finished. That was not just a statement of fact. That was a declaration of victory. Therefore. So the the, the first word, if you look with me in verse 12, that's connecting it with the passage, um, immediately following it, which my brother did such a wonderful job of expositing for us. Therefore. Therefore. Meaning, out of the suffering, out of the anguish of soul, therefore, I, the Father, I will divide him a portion with the many. You see, the reason we are remarking on the suffering of Jesus is because it was not just suffering alone. The suffering of Jesus accomplished something. Otherwise, he would be no different than the thousands of young Jewish men who were crucified during Roman occupation. But no, brothers and sisters, what we can rejoice in today that the suffering of our savior, the suffering of the servant definitively accomplished the plan of God. And we see that he re- achieves a reward for his suffering. It was for the what set before him. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And it says that as a result, out of the anguish of our Savior's suffering, the Father says, I will assign him a portion. I will divide him a portion with the many. What is this portion? What is the result of our Savior's suffering? What can we take comfort and encouragement in today? I think there are several aspects to this portion, the reward of the servant. First and foremost, he will be given a name. He will be given preeminence. You see, the cross, on the cross, but really throughout his entire life, he was what? Despised, rejected, unknown to the world. He who had called the world into being spent most of his life not even noticed by the world. There was nothing about him that would draw us to him nameless but now Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 you don't have to go there but I would encourage you to write it down these are glorious things to reflect on this is what Philippians chapter 2 6 says therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son, the suffering servant, will receive the name that is above every name. And even if there are those who have not yet given him the honor that he is due, there will be a day every knee is going to bow. That is the reward of the servant for his suffering. And we look forward to that day and we are advancing towards that day. What else is included in the portion that the suffering servant is given for his suffering? He is given the nations. Do you remember on top of that cross the sign that was put there? King of the Jews. But friends, brothers and sisters, you see, Jesus, the reward that Jesus receives, the reward of the servant is not just Israel. It is all the nations of the, of the world, every ethne, every people group, all whom the Father have given him, all whom the Father have given him, will be his, will be his. You see this in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is where John Uh, The writer says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. No one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, the father, as a result of the suffering of the son, there are people in every tribe and every nation whom the father has chosen from before the foundation of the world. And that will be part of the son's inheritance of people who will sing this song. And you see, some of those people groups, some of those languages are not yet reached with the gospel and yet we advance every day. Why? Because we want them to hear about Jesus. And yet also because the son will receive the reward for his suffering. The portion, the the suffering servant, he's given the name, he's given the nations. And he's given all authority. Everlasting rule. The father said to the son, ask of me and I will give the nations to you as your inheritance. Psalm 72 says, may all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. One day, one day, the the rule of Jesus Christ that is now occurring in the heavenly places will be seen by all. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ has been appointed the heir of all things. The one by whom the world was created, he will be the heir of all things. Out of the anguish of soul, out of intense suffering that we can only imagine, the Father is pleased to reward him with this portion. I will divide him a portion with the many. And yet, that's not the end of what we are to reflect on here today. Because in the next uh, part of verse 12, please look with me what it says. The second part of verse 12 says, He shall what? He shall divide the spoil with the strong. You see, the reward is not just given to the suffering servant, but it's given to others. Who are these who are strong? You see, really, the reward should be given to no one else because no one else accomplished what only the son could. It is the son's victory. It is the suffering servant's victory. And yet we have this portion. that He shall divide with the strong. Uh, You probably know the expression, to the victor go the spoils, right? And that's the idea of a conquering champion, a conquering warrior. And when he wins, we understand this, he gets everything that that was uh, conquered. And yet we have here the sharing of that victory. Friends, who are the strong? They are those who were once clothed in the filthy rags of their sin, clothed in the feeble attempts to justify ourselves before a holy God. It is to those who were given spotless garments through faith in Jesus Christ, which we have already talked about and gloried in today. It is those sinners who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I hope you are counted among that number, who will represent the armies of heaven one day, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. It is of those sinners who have turned and found their hope in Jesus Christ, put their hope in the suffering servant who Revelation chapter 19 says will be made a kingdom of priests unto our God to rule and reign with him. Please, when you read the strong, don't read those who are strong in and of themselves. It's actually those who have despaired of any hope, any righteousness of their own but have received it because of the gracious work of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And can it be, can it be that I should gain, that you should gain? What love, what love is this? That not only are we declared not guilty, but that we should be rewarded when we have done nothing to deserve it, that we would have the right not only to be called sons and daughters, but to rule and reign with the Savior. He has given us the right, Romans chapter 8, 15 through 18 says, to be his children, and if we are children, heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we follow him, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also glorified with him no merit I hope you hear that loud and clear no merit of our own no merit of our own nothing that we could do all is credited to us as righteousness because of the perfect sinless suffering of our savior we have a down payment in the holy spirit one day our inheritance is coming I'm preaching through the book of First Peter right now in our church and so of course something from first Peter was going to show up in this message and it's it's something that we today can look now forward to first Peter chapter one verse three according to God's great mercy not our own merit he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance this is what is coming for you and me all who are in Christ an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, that day is coming. That day is coming, but it was purchased at the cross, purchased through the suffering of our Savior. How we long for that day. How we long for that day, but please let us never forget the price of this portion, the price of this victory. If you'll look uh, through the third part, you'll see that though our Lord did conquer like a warrior, he did not succeed like earthly warriors do by defeating and killing his enemies, but by dying for the very ones who were his sworn enemies. Read it with me there. He says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So four great sacrificial works. This is a culminating review, really, of the entire chapter. He poured himself out to death. That was the first great act he did. You see, the entire life of Jesus Christ was one of humiliation and condensation. I think I'm saying that one right. His life of humiliation culminated in the pouring out of his blood upon the cross. The the one who was the author of life poured out himself unto death. Jesus paid it all, friends. And what that means for you and me is that it was paid in full. It is finished. That was a phrase used whenever a debt was paid and there was no more payments left. It is finished finished once and for all that's what we rejoice in on good friday that is what we are called to reflect on secondly he is counted among sinners but it says he was numbered with the transgressors jesus himself quoted this verse referring to himself do you think it's amazing that the one who knew no sin identified with sinners and said i will be counted among them these are my people And it's not just with people who made mistakes, people who have, you know, maybe missed the mark a little bit. What does it say? What does it say about you and me? Transgressors, lawbreakers, people deserving of death. That's not a very popular concept today. But how much more meaningful that Jesus did not just die for our mistakes, he died for our rebellion. What a glorious love this is. What a glorious work this is. But you see, Jesus did not just die for our sins. What does it say that he did? He bore the sin of many. He bore the sin of many, all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Their sin was removed from them and put on him. Put on him and only he could do it as has already been preached today. Only he can do it because he was fully God fully man. He alone was able to bear the penalty for our sins. Now, when it says that he was poured out, when it says that he bore the sins of many, when it says that he identified, all of those verbs are in the perfect tense, meaning they, they talk about a past completed action that has ongoing effects. But when we get to this final word and it says he makes intercession, that's an imperfect tense of the verb. And what that means is it's something that was started but not yet finished. Now, some of you just went to sleep through all of that, okay? Why, why, why did I want to talk about that other than to try to impress Pastor Cal with my word study? Listen, those of you who, who went to sleep for that portion, please wake up. Why does that matter? Because the interceding work of Jesus Christ began at the cross, but it continues to this day and forevermore. You see, Hebrews says that he lives now. His vocation, in addition to ruling and reigning, his vocation is to make intercession for you and I. So what Good Friday, what this passage is reminding us, is that though we sin, even as believers and sometimes still sin grievously, we don't make penance. We don't earn our way back. When we are tempted to despair, Christian, when your head is bowed low, when your heart feels as dark as that day at Calvary, what are you called to do, brothers and sisters? Look up. Look up not only to the cross. Look up to see your living, victorious Savior interceding for you. And in closing, what can we do with such wonderful truth? Brothers and sisters, let us give ourselves completely to the one who has poured himself out to death for us. He did not pull back from us, He identified with us. So, Christians, let us draw near to Him and let us walk in a victory that we did not attain, but that He attained for us, a righteousness that is not our own. And finally, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Because we come to a living, victorious Savior. Victory in Jesus. The Son will have the prize for which he suffered. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we rejoice that in a day of darkness, a day with so much pain, a day of so much suffering, that the ultimate word was not the word of the Romans, not the word of the instigators, not the word of the evil one. The ultimate word was your word, and you declared victory. And Lord, the effects of that victory, we still have yet to look forward, and yet we get to enjoy them now. Lord, I pray that as we reflect On the glorious work of Jesus on the cross, we would live with confidence, that we would live with boldness, knowing that we receive, but then that we are called to walk in what you have already purchased for us, all to the praise and honor and glory of the sovereign God, who has been working all things according to the counsel of his own will. Lord, we pray that you would minister these things to our heart in the name of the suffering servant, Jesus the Son. Amen.